Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Father, we come to you empty-handed this morning. We have nothing to hold up to you that could earn us your favor. We come to you with all kinds of wrong thoughts of you and what you want from us. And we need to be reoriented this morning. Spirit, open our eyes to see what you would have us see and be changed by your word once more. Through Christ we pray, amen. Well, I wonder how many of you have engaged with folks who hold uh, pro-abortion views. In college ministry, I've had a few of these conversations over the years, uh, and I've heard a lot of arguments for it. Uh, A common reason that proponents give for abortion is that of viability. Can the baby survive on its own outside the womb? In other words, is it a viable, independent being? Just a year ago, my youngest son couldn't have kept himself alive for a full day without outside help. What about children with Down syndrome? or elderly people who need help with basic daily tasks? Do these individuals have no worth because they depend on others to live? I hope that all of us would shout a resounding no to this question. In our text today, Jesus shows us that it is actually the most unviable and the most helpless people who find life. This has been a recurring theme if you've been with us for the last couple weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, Johnny preached on the first few verses of Luke 18 and how our sense of self-sufficiency is revealed in our prayerlessness. To depend on and trust God, then, is to pray and not lose heart. Last week, Tyler preached on the passage right before ours where we saw two very different ways to approach God. One in blind self-sufficiency or in obvious acknowledgement of your sin. We saw how the gospel is for those who need it And we all need it. Our main point today might sound redundant, but our thesis for today is this. To enter God's kingdom is to acknowledge your need, to renounce everything, and receive infinitely more than you could imagine. And we'll see this in three points. First, we'll look at the way into the kingdom in verses 15 to 17. Then we'll see the cost of the kingdom in verses 18 to 26. And finally, the riches of the kingdom in verses 27 to 30. So let's look at uh, verses 15 to 17 one more time as we look at our first point. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, if you're wondering how these verses fit with the rest of what was read earlier, I want to draw our attention to why Luke organizes the text this way. He presents us with this stark contrast between helpless children in verses 15 to 17 and a rich ruler in the rest of the passage. The first group has no status, no prominence, no power, and the second is known for his wealth and his position. The contrast is supposed to highlight the very point that we're looking at first. Children in this day were generally considered useless and burdensome until they could contribute to their family or society. Here is yet another picture of a culture 
that only ascribes value and worth to someone who has something to offer. Two different words are used in our passage for who is being brought to Jesus. First he says infants and then children. And not a word in scripture is accidental. Because Luke starts off saying that infants are being brought to Jesus, I want to consider the ramifications of that. Can you think of anything more helpless than an infant? For those of you in the room with children, I'm sure you all remember the first few nights at home with your firstborn child, where every sniffle seems like a sign of impending death. Every cry draws you like lightning to the side of the bassinet. And it makes sense, because infants are utterly dependent on their parents. They contribute nothing but cuteness to the world. They don't help pay the bills, they actually increase the size of them. But we know that value doesn't come from one's ability to contribute. Value is inherent to all of God's image bearers. So people are bringing these helpless image bearers to Jesus that he might touch them. Well, I want to draw our attention to the word touch. Touch in its proper place can convey care and familiarity and gentleness and affection and protection, and in Jesus' case, healing. Why does Luke employ the language of touch here? He doesn't actually even say that the infants and children need to be healed. So why bring up the physical contact at all? Well, think about what it means that Jesus, the infinite, eternal creator and sustainer of the universe, can and would even bother touching the untouchable and unimportant. Jesus has existed co-equal with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity, creating the universe and everything in it. He's the cosmic ruler of the universe, whose throne is forever and ever, and yet he condescended to become a man. He stooped so low as to take on human flesh to live among us. An early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, said of the incarnation, what has not been assumed has not been healed. In other words, if Jesus didn't become fully human, he couldn't fully heal humanity. He couldn't save us and restore us to God. And he could have come as a conqueror, which is what the Jews expected. He had every right to arrive in thunderous glory, kicking butts and taking names. He could have marched from town to town, commanding allegiance or death. But instead, he was born in humility as a helpless human baby. He went on to experience the whole gamut of human temptation without ever sinning. And his incarnation would culminate in the same way that every other human life does in his death. But his death would be the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. In our passage, people bringing infants and children to Jesus so that he might touch them is so profound. It is absolutely necessary that Jesus stooped from divine glory to touch and heal, to wash and cleanse, and die to save us. Here in Luke, God in flesh calls helpless children to him that he might convey his love, care, and healing power through touch. He came not to touch wealthy, powerful people and start a movement of influential followers, but to touch infants and children completely without resource. And what are the disciples up to while these children are being brought to Jesus? Well, they're barring them access. How dare these tiny people approach the king of the universe with their tiny problems? But look at Jesus' response to the disciples. 
In verses 16 and 17, he says, but Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, it would be a mistake to read Jesus' words here and say, all children get into the kingdom. We know that no one gets eternal life apart from repentance and faith in Christ. So what exactly is it that Jesus is saying here? The way into the kingdom is simple. Admit you have nothing to offer. Come to Jesus. The only way is to come to him in repentance and faith. Well, as parents, Joy and I are constantly asking our kids to apologize to one another uh, or to us when they have sinned. We typically say something like, what do you need to say to mommy? And our child says, with nearly zero sincerity, I'm sorry, mommy, which we follow up with, well, what specifically are you sorry for? My youngest, who's three, regularly apologizes for the wrong thing. After whacking his mom with a blunt object, we coax an apology out of him. But when we ask what he's sorry for, he says while staring around the room, I'm sorry for not listening to you. He thinks that if he just goes through the motions and says the words, then we can all move on and he can get back to hitting people with blunt objects. Sometimes I think we treat repentance like this. We approach God to say, sorry for what I did, only to get back to the same sins with no remorse. We think we can check the repentance box and get on with our lives. But repentance is a much weightier thing. When sharing the gospel on campus, I most often use the words turn and trust as clarifiers for repentance and faith. Repentance is a posture of heart that says, I agree with God about my guilt, and I want nothing to do with that anymore. But it's not enough to quit doing a list of things. Non-Christians can turn from specific sins and stop bad habits and start good ones. YouTube videos and podcasts abound from godless people telling you how to do so. But true repentance only happens when God's blazing holiness and perfection shines light on the overwhelming problem of sin in our hearts. And when he shows us how helplessly lost we are, we know the only way is to turn from our sin and turn to him, our only hope of righteousness. Coming to Jesus like the children in this passage means you know you have absolutely nothing to offer him. And apart from his mercy, you're doomed. Humble reliance is the only way in. To come to Jesus any other way is to be denied entry into the kingdom, which leads us to our second point, and that's the cost of the kingdom. Well, the story of the rich ruler is well known in some Christian circles, uh, but probably for the wrong reasons. Both in the church and in broader society, there's a trend where poverty and minimalism are generally looked upon with favor and wealth is despised. Some of you will remember in 2011 when Occupy Wall Street popped up. This was the movement that despised the so-called 1%, the wealthy elite. The theory then is that the rest of us average folks are the 99%. Well, the silly thing about this idea is that, globally speaking, the poorest person in this room is part of the 1%. To have clean water and food and clothing and shelter right now means that you are extremely wealthy by most of the world's standards. But the story of the rich ruler is not actually about the merits of poverty or necessarily that wealth is even a bad thing. Read with me verses 18 to 20, which really frame the rest of the story. 
And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Well, if you're like me, when I initially read this passage, you might be asking what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is good and Jesus is God. This is the clear and consistent testimony of the Bible. But to the ruler, Jesus is merely a good teacher. This is not uncommon to hear even in our culture today. Jesus' question of why do you call me good gets to the very heart of goodness itself. What does it mean to be good? Can a person even be good? In his infinite wisdom, Jesus then turns to the law. You know the commandments, he says, and proceeds to walk through five of the Ten Commandments, the law that was given to Israel. Paul tells us in Romans that this law, the law that Jesus holds up like a mirror to the ruler, gives knowledge of sin. For the ruler to see Jesus rightly, he would have to first see God's standard as impossible, and therefore God himself as impossible to reach by his good works. Seeing God as he is would mean seeing himself as sinful and unable to defend his case before a perfectly holy and just God. And by all accounts, it looks like the ruler is a pretty good guy. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't murdered anyone. He hasn't stolen anything or wrongly accused anyone in court. And he has honored his parents since childhood. Many of us are familiar with how Jesus raises the bar on what sin actually is uh, in Matthew 5 as he correlates hatred in the heart and murder and lust in the heart and adultery. He reveals that even if we keep the letter of the law by not sleeping with someone other than our spouse, we break it with the lustful intent of our hearts. He reveals that even if we don't break the commandment not to murder, the hatred and anger we harbor in our hearts condemns us. Jesus doesn't ask the ruler to justify himself by the law, but to see how the law has always been about the heart. And the heart is so full of sin, no matter how perfect we appear on the outside. Which is why Jesus doesn't waste time arguing with the ruler about his self-justification here. He doesn't have to, because watch what happens in verses 22 to 25. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, here Jesus cuts straight to the heart. Even if by some stretch of the imagination the ruler could keep every other point of the law, he would fail here because the biggest idol in his life was his money, his wealth. If you don't consider yourself wealthy and you've already decided that this passage and this sermon are not for you, maybe you're a college student here, uh, please stick with me. Just like the law, the point is the ruler's heart, not how big his bank account is. What exactly is it about wealth that keeps him from entering the kingdom, from finding eternal life? If money in and of itself is not evil, what's the problem? Our heart toward money reveals a lot about us. Think about how easy it is, even if you have very little money, to treat it as your savior. Have you ever thought to yourself, 
well, my life would be so much easier if I had a better paying job. Or if I got that raise, then I'd really be able to live the way that I've always wanted to. College students, have you ever thought, when I start my career, I'll finally have enough money to travel and buy the things that I want. Then I'll really be happy. Or for the kids in the room, have you ever thought, I wish I had more money so I could buy cool stuff like my friend has. If only I had that deck of Pokemon cards or a bike as cool as hers. We're constantly asking our money to save us from the life that we're discontent with and to save us into a more fulfilling existence. If you're in the room and you have lots of money, have you ever struggled to feel your need for God because you've worked hard, earned a great deal, and can basically buy what you want or need without thinking twice about it? I have a close friend who grew up in Taiwan, and he would tell you this is probably the greatest obstacle to true Christianity in Taiwan. People's wealth has given them the perception that they lack nothing. What could they possibly need from God that they haven't already earned for themselves? And herein lies the greatest obstacle for the ruler. He became very sad because he now knew that even if he could keep every point of the law, he couldn't give up this one thing. One thing, his financial portfolio would keep him from entering the kingdom of God. We don't get all the details, but maybe he could only see what was immediately in front of him, the lifestyle that he had grown accustomed to. And it was too much to bear the thought of giving it up. This is the point of our second point. The cost of following Jesus is whatever you love most in life. For the ruler, Jesus calls him to renounce his wealth and follow him. And maybe that's what Jesus calls you today. But maybe he's calling you to stop seeking a spouse above him. Maybe he's calling you to stop prioritizing your career over him. Maybe he's calling you to stop prioritizing the adventurous, Instagram-worthy life over him. One of the best ways to discern what idols we have in our hearts is to ask ourselves the question, what is my vision of the good life? Idols are all about disordered affections. Money, sex, family, career, none of these are inherently bad things in and of themselves. But idolatry takes a good thing and makes it an ultimate thing. And the weight of this passage is enormous. Doesn't it just sound impossible when you look at your own heart? That's because it is. The rich ruler could no sooner give up his wealth to enter the kingdom of God than a camel could go through the eye of a needle. And you and I can no sooner give up whatever grips our hearts than a freight train could fit through my water bottle. The crowd and the disciples in our passage respond rightly. Look at what they say in verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who could be saved? Entering the kingdom of God and finding eternal life is synonymous here with salvation. Originally, in thinking through how to preach this text, I thought I should really define the kingdom of God, but I actually love how beautifully Luke defines it for us, just in the conversations happening in this passage. Entering God's God's kingdom is to be saved from our sin. It's to be brought graciously into life with him, now living freely under his rule and reign. That's God's kingdom. And no one waltzes into this kingdom like a dignitary visiting the king of another country. The king of this kingdom is unparalleled in his perfection, his holiness, his justice, and his power. The crowd's question is spot on. Salvation is impossible. If this wealthy, well-known ruler can't find eternal life for himself, what hope do we have? 
The bad news is the cost of the kingdom is too great for all of us, every single one of us. But we'll see some incredibly good news in our last point where we'll look at the riches of the kingdom. So read with me again from verses 27 to 30. But he, that's Jesus, said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This last section of our text is where both the helplessness of the children and the self-reliance of the ruler find their answer. How can a helpless child find their way into God's kingdom? How can a money-loving, powerful figure humble himself and renounce his wealth to follow Jesus? By the impossible made possible power of conversion. Conversion is an ugly word in our culture. It has all kinds of baggage attached to it that can make people cringe. I want to be clear that what we're talking about here is this is not conversion to some sort of Judeo-Christian cultural norm where you have to wear khakis to belong, nor are we talking merely about trading one set of values and standards for another. In John 3, another Jewish ruler, Nicodemus, sneaks out at night to find Jesus and hear more of his teaching. This is the famous passage where Jesus teaches that to be saved is to be born again. We don't have time this morning, but read John 3 this week to see this astonishing theology of regeneration and conversion, and specifically how it happens. According to Jesus in John 3, conversion is something that happens to you. Think about what it means to be born. You had literally nothing to do with it. It happened to you. You had no will because you didn't exist. You weren't some sort of alien spirit baby floating around before you chose to inhabit your mother's human womb. You came about by the will of your parents, some of us more purposefully than others. But the point is, you didn't know how it happened. It just happened. In the same way, no one comes to saving repentance and faith in Christ apart from the Holy Spirit drawing us and opening our eyes to the truth. This is profoundly good news. The truth is we could not and would not come to Jesus because we lived, loved our sin too much. We were happy as a pig in the mud, making peace with our sin and living in it until we weren't. The Spirit had to give us the appetite for Christ. And this fits with what Luke is doing in our passage this morning. Notice how many passive verbs are used. People are bringing the infants to Jesus. They're not coming to him. Jesus says the kingdom of God is received multiple times. Even the disciples who have given up everything to follow him, they don't earn eternal life. It's received in verse 30. Even the rich ruler asks how to inherit eternal life. That's telling language. You don't control your inheritance. As much as you wish you could, so your dirtbag siblings don't get any of it, your inheritance by definition is something that is given to you. You're, you're born or adopted into it. It's given by your parents. Our entry into the kingdom begins with the Father choosing us from eternity past, the Holy Spirit initiating by drawing us to himself, and the Son coming to live perfectly, die sacrificially, and raise from the dead to free us from sin and death. The salvation that's impossible for us has not only been made possible by the triune God, but it is from start to finish, from A to Z, his work and his plan and his purpose is worked out in your life. 
Our response is something we don't do on our own. But being given eyes to see and ears to hear, we cannot help but respond by coming to Jesus empty-handed in repentance and faith. Our friend, the rich ruler, couldn't see past the cost to see what he would receive in walking away from his wealth. But following Jesus is not all cost, no gain. What you lose temporarily is blown out of the water by what you gain eternally. To be saved is actually to see your former life as poverty and your new life as incomparable wealth. Jesus says his followers will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. How can he say they will receive many times more in this time when most of them will go on to suffer and die for his name? Paul answers this question in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, where he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. With our eyes set on heaven, all of our suffering on earth falls into its proper place. This life might be hard, but it is momentary. We might be financially poor, but we have eternal riches beyond anything you could ever imagine in the salvation that Jesus offers to you. How does the reality of our eternal riches change the way we view our lives today? Jesus says we receive many times more now in this time. I want to walk through a list of areas that Christians are rich right now. And this is not some sort of empty exercise in being thankful. These are true riches that we can hang our hat on, no matter our circumstances. So stick with me for this list. Church, we are rich in grace. We were guilty, but we've been forgiven. We deserved death, but Jesus gave us life. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 that Jesus became poor for our sake so that by his poverty, we might become rich. This is nothing but unfair, undeserved grace. We're rich in righteousness. Because Jesus became sin for us, though he knew no sin, we became his righteousness. Now when God looks at us, he sees his son. We're rich in access to God. We get to do what Johnny talked about a couple weeks ago in praying and not losing heart. We get to approach the God of the universe boldly because we don't come to him with the filth of our own sin. We come clothed in Jesus' righteousness and his good works. We are rich in sanctification. The spirit is day by day conforming us more to the image of his son, helping us to put off sin and put on Christ. We are rich in knowledge. The simplest person among us who has been captivated by the gospel and had God's mercy made alive to them by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, has everything, has all the knowledge you could possibly need. God's word contains everything we need for life and godliness, today, tomorrow, and always. We are rich in relationships. You might feel lonely in here this morning, and I certainly don't want to discredit your experience. Maybe it's hard to see, but to be a Christian is to be saved from the isolation of our sin and saved into a community. We're not just reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to one another. We're saved into the covenant family of the church. And the church isn't an optional add-on for the Christian life. The New Testament knows 
no such thing as a Christian who is not part of a multi-generational, multi-ethnic body of Christ. No matter how great or crummy your biological family is, we get a new family in the church. We get spiritual brothers and sisters, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandparents. We preach the gospel to one another. We bear each other's burdens. We share each other's joys. We read scripture together. We pray together. We eat meals in each other's homes. We play with each other's kids. We disciple one another. We are rich in relationships. We're also rich in purpose and meaning. Nothing is more on the mind of most young people in this room. I would consider myself a part of that. Don't forget it, college students. Um, But the question of what is my purpose? What gives most meaning to my life? This comes up all the time in conversations. And being captured by the gospel, we are made ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us in the world. To labor for riches, to buy stuff that will waste away, is exhausting and meaningless. But regardless of your occupation, to labor in evangelism, to labor in discipleship, to strive to know and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength provides wonderful purpose and meaning to life. This is riches. We're rich in hope. Think about the disciples who would go on to endure persecution and death at the hands of unjust men for the sake of Christ. If our hope is in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if we have our eyes fixed on our Savior who suffered and died but was raised from the dead, purchasing not only our forgiveness but our eternal inheritance, we are rich in the hope of a kingdom that can't be shaken. Finally, we're rich in life. In John 17, just before his betrayal and arrest, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent where we were destined for a Christless eternity, experiencing God's wrath forever, Jesus' followers are guaranteed eternal life that starts now in knowing him and carries on forever in the age to come in heaven. As we wrap up this morning, I want to ask you to consider a couple questions. First, if you're a non-Christian with us this morning, are you conscious of your response to Jesus? Would you consider whether you approach him with childlike faith, empty-handed, or whether you come to him with a list of good works that you hold up to him for the reason he should let you in. Jesus makes it clear there is no life for anyone who comes to him in any other way. Come to him in repentance and faith and receive eternal life. He will not cast you out. If this resonates with you, uh, or you have questions about this, come catch me or catch one of our pastors or somebody you saw on stage today. We would love to talk more with you about that. If you're a Christian here this morning, you know that repentance and faith are ongoing for us too. We of all people ought to know our daily need for God's grace in Christ. What might Jesus say is the one thing you still lack? Is there something this morning that calls for your allegiance other than Jesus? Is there a pet sin that you can't seem to beat and that needs to be brought to light in the gospel and that you need help from another believer with? If you're a Christian, remember that even the good things we have belong to Christ. This morning, obedience might look like giving something up, wealth or otherwise, to follow Jesus. In one of my favorite hymns, the writer pens these words, If thou shouldst call me to resign, what most I prize it ne'er was mine, 
I only yield thee what was thine. Thy will be done. What is impossible for you to give up is made possible with God's grace toward us in Christ. Church, let's call each other again to repentance and faith this week. Well, finally, at risk of sounding redundant every time that I get to preach, I would be remiss not to mention missions. In the final two verses of our passage today, Jesus makes a promise to his disciples who have left house and home that what they receive in return is infinitely more than what they gave up. No one leaves their old life behind in God's kingdom without receiving many times more in return. Imagine exchanging even 10 of your vapor-like years on earth in order to take the gospel where it is currently not. Imagine your own joy in being the messenger who gets the privilege of taking the gospel for the first time to a people group that's never heard it and will die to a Christless eternity if someone doesn't go. Go and follow Jesus. You will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that what was impossible for us in our sin, you made possible by sending your son. Jesus, thank you for becoming poor for us at the cross that we might become rich in your gospel. Spirit, keep the truth of your word fixed in our minds this week that we might daily return to you in repentance and faith, trusting you with nothing in our hands. Amen.